I'll be talking about more than just the Benjamins. Welcome to Fintech Beat, where finance, technology, and policy come together. I'm your host, Chris Brummer, and the future of finance is now. With so much going on in the world of crypto, one would be forgiven for thinking that all the activity in the sector must revolve around lawsuits and Twitter rampages from C-suites and white-haired politicians and regulators. But the stakeholders in the U.S. crypto conversation are quite diverse. In fact, surveys suggest that although African Americans hold just 3.8% of wealth in the United States, minorities own more crypto as a percentage of their population than any other group, with 30% of Blacks and 27% of Latino investors owning cryptocurrencies, compared to just 17% of white investors. Now, longtime listeners of the show know that we're not afraid of taking on the hard issues, and I wanted to dig in from a different perspective. And I've assembled some of the foremost Black and Latino thinkers in the space to talk about what the larger crypto conversation means for them and what it should mean for our policy conversation. And we are delighted to have some superstars. Uh, Dante Desparte, the Chief Strategy Officer and Head of Global Policy at Circle. Tanya Evans, a professor at the Penn State Dickinson School of Law. And Carmel Cadet, the CEO of Imtech, a startup building out cloud-based software for central banks. Now, together, they're going to help us brainstorm a bit about fairness, opportunity, and inclusion, and where government and industry get things right and wrong when trying to connect innovation to minority communities. Dante, we're blazing a path. Thanks so much for joining the show. Thank you, Chris. I've been counting the days. Tanya, you as well. It's great to see you. Thank you. I've been counting the Satoshis. And Carmel, it's been too long and great to finally get you on the show. I'm a big fan. Thank you for having me. Before jumping into crypto, I think I'll just level set a bit for the show, maybe with a bit of a confession. Um, I think at least for me, listening to crypto conversations can be uh, a bit of, a, of an out-of-body experience in part because the way people talk about the issue uh, on, on Zoom calls or in policy conversations is just different from how I talk about it um, in my own neighborhood and with many of my friends. Dante, you are a leader, someone I respect and, and look to for advice all the time. Maybe you can just share a bit about how your perspective uh, informs the way you go about doing your job. Yeah, well, well. first of all, I, I, I would be remiss not to acknowledge the incredible scholarship and work that you are doing for calling um, bluff on the financial inclusion scorecard and on the, the, the inclusion scorecard when it comes to who is regulating the financial system. And so I think you're doing really, really important, really powerful work. Candidly, I'm trying to emulate what you are doing in my role in the private sector by um, not just talking about it and making it a fig leaf, albeit a very big one, but actually to doing something meaningful for brown and black people all over the world. So um, as a person who has shown up to give keynote addresses dressed in a suit and tie, to be asked, I am the, are you the mic check guy? Are you the sound technician? Um, I think all too often we, we don't realize what it means to be excluded from a system until you peer behind the curtain, something you and I have discussed at length. And I find myself in this sort of very unique position at a, at a very big, important company in the financial technology arena with this additional sense of purpose on top of what I think is my own vision and my own mission. And for a company that has a, a really important mission of economic prosperity, 
I find I have the double burden of also not screwing it up for the rest of us, but also really, really challenging myself and challenging my industry and my company to do something meaningful for people who look like me, right? And so I think that's a twin burden that most people don't fully understand. And so I applaud you, Chris, and the, the work that you're doing and the scholarship that you're doing for calling, uh, for calling bluff on a lot of uh, uh, false statements and false promises. Well, well, I'm sure, Tanya, you know, as a professor, uh, you also understand what it means to call out bluffs and to uh, play referee of, of, of sorts. You know, um, you, you too have, have had some really amazing interventions in the space. You know, uh, are, are there any times in any areas where, where you think that just your, your background, you know, where you're coming from, uh, both as, as a woman, but also as a black woman, where you think that those kinds of experiences you know, maybe shape the way in which you're, you, you, you hear or you're thinking about different aspects of um, either crypto or financial technology more generally? Um, I have often, as I think we all have at one point or another each week, probably been the only one in the room, either a first or only. I think about um, the, the entire expanse of my life is often being a first or an only going to a small private quick school, French Central um, School in Philadelphia. Um, I was the first and only in many circles as a former professional tennis player, often uh, not the first, but often the only and showing up with six rackets and uh, being card checked every time as if I would surreptitiously steal some grass from I don't know what, uh, you know, wearing the full regalia. And so to Dante's point, that also certainly happens in the crypto space. So while there have been times that I have, once you start talking the talk, people listen. Um, are you in the room? And are you able to engage people meaningfully to not just talk about the lofty goals in a brilliant white paper, but to also ensure that the technology and the build um, the participation is not just open access, but intentional. And there's a very different energy and spirit to that. And so constantly engaging people to bring to the fore things that may not be at the fore um, for technology that is, is, is purported to be open in all ways. There's still, there's still friction around inclusion and, and we have to talk about it. Carmel, you are the founder here in the group. Uh, what about you? You're building a really interesting company, an international company. And like Dante, you have a very international background from Haiti. How did you come to the space and, and how does your own personal experience fit into how you think about and, and, and how you've built your startup? I mean, for me, there's no doubt about it. Uh, I remember the first time I understood what crypto and blockchain technology could do. It was directly tied to something that I wanted to solve for a long time and that I'm on a mission to solve for, which is giving access to efficient payment financial services to anyone, regardless of where they live, regardless of where they come from, um, coming from Haiti specifically, um, and being the CEO and the founder of a tech company in the U.S., with the crazy mission of bringing crypto and blockchain benefits and technology into the central banking level, for me, I own that, right? And that's because of that background. I think absolutely when we when we look at crypto, and I think the numbers are showing the curiosity 
um, of minorities and Black people, specifically in crypto. I think it's because of a different need and that different perspective sometimes that everyone has it. Yeah, you know, uh, with all of those um, examples, you know, what I've found interesting was this sort of emphasis on 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 inclusion, right? You know, this this idea of of access, and I think that you know when you have an opportunity um, to engage something new, no matter what it is, um, if, if you haven't had it, and if you come from a community that hasn't had certain forms of of, of access, you, you just kind of feel feel programmed. To sort of look at it and kick the tires to, to think through, well, well, how could that potentially work um, uh, for a, a, a broad subset of, of, of society? And I'll, I'll just share, you know, my own sort of sort of out of body experience. It's not really a crypto example, but I think it's useful when I when, when you know people sort of say, Chris, you know, it's kind of weird, like you're, you're spending all this time over in crypto, and 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 I tell them, well, you know, the the conversation on on financial technology or innovation even even generally it kind of reminds me of you know some of the early conversations on Uber right because you know there was this conversation on Uber in which people would say hey you know uh, you know sometimes progressives would say hey you know gig economy it's 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 changing the world of work and then you know I'm saying yeah but now I can get a cab to Harlem right because people just weren't stopping for me you know I, I I could remember literally even in, in in law school hiding around the corner and having my white friends hail the cab and then they'd stop the cab and then I'd jump in afterwards and then we could you know head head uptown uh, to law school and 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 you know it's, it's like that there's this sort of a bit of a, of a disconnect there because um I think that in, in some policy conversations, whether or not you're dealing with an imperfect technology or perfect te- technology, sometimes there's not really an, enough um, time spent thinking about where demand is coming from and, and why different parts of society may demand or need um, a certain kind of solution. And, and if you don't like that solution, then at least you have to understand why the legacy system may have been failing them. And if, if, if you can't take that seriously, then you can't really come up with a policy solution seriously. And I guess that's how I somehow went from Uber to <laughs> thinking about um, all different forms of uh, financial technology from, from all data and the like. But but that, that inclusivity, like I want to get included in that cap. You know, I think that that's, that's, that's a story that I, that, that I have heard from lots of people in, in, in the sector. Despite all that, and I and 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 I think Dante, you, you had started off us uh, down that that this conversation, and I think I, it's a good place to go. You know, you, you were talking about calling bluffs on on inclusion. You know, uh, uh, inclusion is used in lots of different terms, in lots of different contexts, in lots of different ways, and um, it's certainly used in industry in certain kinds of ways, and 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 it's it's uh, also used. Um, uh, by regulators in in different kinds of ways. You know, when you hear this word inclusion, uh, do you have a sense of who's who's getting it right? And and uh, uh, if no one's getting it right, I mean, what do you have in your mind when you think about the term inclusion? Yeah. Well. Well. First of all, I love the Uber cab reference and. Not only is it sufficient to get in the cab, I'm interested in people owning the cab company, the technology, and the code, and not being excluded because the algorithm didn't quite contemplate you, you or what you look like, right? So uh, inclusion is is not enough to or just heading say to Harlem, right? Yeah. Um, so so in my world, this journey of being involved in fintech and technology at the leadership levels that I've been able to play in 
is sort of a test against the odds and a test against growing up poor and being born in the wrong postal code. So not an abstraction. I was born poor in Puerto Rico, first to get through high school and college. So everything Tanya said uh, at the outset, of course, resonates to me. And Puerto Rico would make Mississippi look rich. If I wanted to move money to my family in Puerto Rico fast, and it often is the call I get late at night, it would be better for me to get on a plane with just shy of $10,000 if the money had to arrive right away. And so inclusion is not just about technologies that could turn basic mobile phones into a compliant payment endpoint, right? It's also about addressing what form of money are people getting and, and, and how are they getting it and the speed with which they can get it, right? So all too often, and frankly, COVID-19 bore this out, that, that the, the countries that have fast payment systems and, and payment system optionality, because technology alone is not a panacea, uh, we're able to respond to COVID-19 at speed. Like I, I've said before, you know, if you wanted to solve for financial inclusion, stroke of a pen, open banking rules, banking portability, like we can carry our phone numbers in our mobile phones with us from one provider to the other. That's a policy decision. It's not a technology fix. But the tech shows us where technology, where, where, where competition, regulation, and policy has fallen short. That's what I love about what crypto represents. It's, it's, a, it's an ugly in-your-face challenge to bastions and to industries like those yellow cab companies that have not enjoyed any competition until Uber showed up. And now all of a sudden you could take any payment and all of a sudden you can cross North Capitol Street in D.C. Uh, so that's what I love about the space. I think we have a long way to go. We have a checkered scorecard, but we've only just started. And so watch what happens when people like us are in seats of power and can call truth to power and speak truth to power as you have, Chris, and others continue to do, watch what happens five years from today, 10 years from today, and tell me the scorecard isn't improved. I do think it's really an interesting conversation, one where we're listening to policy conversations and we're like, wait a minute, I, I don't think you understand why we're talking uh, or, or, or even taking Uber here. Uh, you guys never really listened to what a big problem discriminatory cabs were, but then on the other, you, you, you do have to still hold the industry to account. Um, and in that vein, I found acting comptroller Hughes' remarks in a recent speech, you know, really interesting. He said, uh, and I'm reading here, uh, I support the goal of increasing financial inclusion, and then he goes on, uh, but it's difficult to see how the current set of activities is achieving that goal. How is crypto DeFi making it less expensive to be poor? How is it helping to expand access to banking services and credit? How is it making housing more affordable and building long-term wealth? And, you know, I mean, I, I guess he's not exactly off base here. I mean, a, a lot of people talk inclusion in crypto with a lot of platitudes and, and not um, necessarily taking their own rhetoric seriously. Um, Tanya, uh, how do you approach the term uh, of inclusion and, and how do you bring your policy expertise and personal expertise to bear when, when trying to navigate um, uh, sort of this, this, this kind of attention? Well, I think you approach it from two different perspectives points of view, how the word is used in every white paper and how the implementation of the technology is actually impacting the lives of people. And so you could have a win on both. You can have a loss on either uh, or both. And and yet I can use myself as as an example and also to highlight, um, to take a a sidestep for a moment, on um, to a question you asked earlier, because I think it aligns well here, of identifying what are all the problems 
uh, oftentimes you hear, uh, and perhaps the uh, what you were quoting from, um, gets to this point that this technology uh, is a solution in need of a problem. And I, I respectfully uh, push back on that when I think of some people, regardless of their economic station in life, I'll say more about that in a minute because my, I have my own personal story, aren't granted access to even set up a bank account or use financial services. Um, a lack of access to financial services obviously can prevent people not just from engaging in what they need on a daily basis, but also from being employed. As was already mentioned, this idea of money transfers or money transmission that takes days and lots of dollars. And by the time you send uh, fiat around the world, it's a shell of its former self. And then there's that pesky thing of systemic discrimination that uh, is the invisible oftentimes at this point in life, but also but has these very real world implications, regardless of your station in life, regardless of your your um, your bank account, uh, the business that you engage in. And case in point for me, one of the vainglorious moments of actually being successful in the crypto realm is being able to buy a home for my mother. If I never do another thing on this planet, having done that is one of my shining moments. It was insanely difficult to do so, even with an almost perfect credit score, uh, using 3% of my uh, available credit. Uh, being a long-term person in a very solid foundation in terms of education, being a full professor at Penn State Dickinson Law, business owner, all of the things where you check off all of the boxes. If my package had been placed by a cisgendered white male, that house would have been bought months ago. And the hoops that I had to jump through, um, I can see through some of the technology and the tools and the decentralized protocols, full disclosure, I'm the chair of the Maker Foundation, part of the MakerDAO's ecosystem. And so I'm very bullish on decentralized finance. Um, but I can see very real world impacts that begin even in my home. And I have the exceptional privilege as a matter of my uh, professional status, uh, my assets, and still I am uh, dogged by that uh, pernicious outcome of still being a Black woman at the table trying to participate meaningfully uh, as I certainly contribute meaningfully to the world. Carmel, Tanya makes this really good point that examples or, or case studies are really important. It's, it's, it's essential for industry. Uh, it, it helps to keep people honest, but it's, it's also really useful for policymakers trying to get their arms around just what the technology is doing and what social value it may have in order to enjoy some kind of regulatory dispensation. Now, you've had such an interesting career working with central banks. How difficult has it been to translate your ideals about inclusion into your work and projects? Ironically, I do find central banking pretty simple. I know it's weird to say, but um, for some reason, I've, I've gotten there. I don't know how. Uh, but the, the inclusion conversation when it comes to central bank, again, is pretty simple. It's actually pretty well defined where you think about bringing the unbanked into the banking sector. Right. That's kind of like the bread and butter basic definition when it comes to metrics and macroeconomic and policymaking. Um, some of the work that brings us, uh, I guess, to bring value to central banks is to say, look, there's a whole new world out there that was born out of a need that was left unmet. Um, and this, I, my first formal job was as a bank teller. So I, you won't find me kind of criticizing banks, right? That's not the point per se. But the fact of the matter is, is that there 
there's more demand. There is more demand. There are different use cases. There are different needs. There are different demographics. There are different groups. There's different niche. Um, we experience life differently. And as we grow and as we evolve, um, you see def- different um, economic development stages, um, different adoption rate to technology or not. Um, when you think about M-Pesa in, in, in Kenya compared to what we have in the U.S., you know, there's a very different framing on what is a modern payment system, um, what is an efficient payment system. Um, so the difficulties that we have here in the U.S. are different um, from what you would have around the world. But let's focus on the U.S. for a minute, because um, even in the context of inclusion in the U.S. for years, I remember when I was in IBM at the time, I used to try to make the case in IBM and say there's a business case around financial inclusion. And they did not get it, right? That's really, honestly, I could not find the numbers to make the case for financial inclusion. And that's because um, we're using one metric on how many people who are banked versus who are unbanked. So if you look at it that way, then um, you say it's not broken, why fix it? Um, And I've had that asked many times. Uh, The emergence of fintech um, specifically, and then you add the emergence of DeFi, Um, and the value that cryptocurrency and crypto mechanics can bring together, you end up with just an unlimited set of options on how to address the demand, how to create supply. And I think that's exciting. And as a regulator and as central banks look at this, um, I happen to be a believer that you still need an anchor in every financial market. regardless of whether it's crypto, whether it's digital, or it's someone that you walk into an office, someone needs to put some guardrail somewhere in this ecosystem. So I think central bank money will continue, but you'll have, you know, the USDCs of the world that build on top of that. And that's what the infrastructure should look like. So inclusion in channel is something that we're talking about more now. It's not just the demographic. It's not just the unbanked, but who's servicing the unbanked? Who's reaching the unbanked? Who's reaching those markets? Who's willing to go and connect Venezuela and the US? Who's willing to build that rail? And as a regulator, as central banks, providing the infrastructure to make sure that it is stable, it is resilient, but also um, allowing the channels to innovate and solve problems better than they can. That's inclusion. And, and Chris, if I could, just for one second, because both Carmel and, and Tanya, you know, hit on really, really important issues. But just kind of getting back to the point you raised at the very outset of this of this uh, wave of commentary is I'm always really, really skeptical of purity test applied to an industry that is novel and to a group of people that are new to the table a purity test that the rest of the banking and financial system and candidly the public sector has had a monopoly on trying to solve. They're now telling me and they're telling fintech firms that you have failed on the financial inclusion scorecard. We've only just gotten started. USDC is three years old. Crypto as an industry is less than 10 years old. The institutional adoption of blockchain-based payment systems is two or three years old. We've only just gotten started. And you're telling me I failed a purity test that you've had a monopoly and an enormous time horizon to address, and you failed. Fortress nations like the United States revealed the vulnerability of their payment systems in the context of COVID-19. Think of all the things that you could do with your money, your payments, uh, and, and think about how we performed as a country. We have failed 
The best we could do was send physical checks to people. Everybody in America got a $1,200 check, irrespective of the means of those communities. I sit on FEMA's National Advisory Council. So when bad things happen, like hurricanes and floods and, and Katrina and all of the terrible things that have displaced millions of our people, in the rest of the world, these displaced people would be called IDPs, internally displaced people. But we've failed in the ability to mobilize disaster response domestically. You don't need to look to Haiti, where Carmel is from, or, or Sub-Saharan Africa to find use cases for technology and financial inclusion. We could do it at home, but we don't do it because of a policy failure. So I'm, I'm really, really skeptical of, of people calling bluff on our purity test on an issue that they've failed so woefully uh, domestically and around the world. I call it a blind spot usually, but you're absolutely right, Dante. It's, it's not a, a view that they have. And now it becomes a critical customer service issue. The case is already being made by the adoption that is filling the gap, filling the void in an organic way that is now attracting the attention of centralized finance, which makes Carmel's work in particular so important to bridge the divide and to make sure that they're the necessary guardrails while at the same time having, um, you know, a basket of options. One of the themes that I hear recurring is that it's important to understand demand, to understand why there is adoption and, and where uh, there are real problems being solved or, or where there are problems that, that need to be solved. But demand uh, ultimately brings challenges and a very real need to protect communities from risk arising in systems, especially here, that are inchoate and, and complex, and then balance them against the need to not only scale, but to also deliver new opportunity. Uh, Dante, uh, you, especially, uh, perhaps more than anyone, you, you've had to deal with this challenge uh, virtually every day. Um, how do you navigate this terrain? Yeah, so so I think it's one a very powerful question. I, I kind of start, I'm a very, very simple man when it comes to how do we bend the arc of Moore's law in the favor of humanity? That's what this entire conversation is all about. That's what you are all about when you put on the FinTech Week events and the rest. And that's what all of us are discussing. And I, my, my view of the world is very simple. If to be banked means access to brick and mortar banking, then humanity's in trouble. Because guess what? Brick and mortar banking has reached a point of diminishing returns akin to if to have access to telephony meant access to physical fixed line infrastructure, then there would be billions of people on the margins of telephony. And that you don't have to go to, again, emerging and developing countries to find where those problems exist. I live in the nation's capital. One line across North Capitol Street, we get 60% of our students in this city across uh, the high school finishing line. The same exists in terms of internet connectivity, access to ba basic banking. We, we have a, a country of deserts, of banking deserts, educational deserts, opportunity deserts. And so in my world, if I have a chance in, in the short run that I have as a senior executive in the fintech landscape to ensure that I'm pointing out where those deserts lie, and what are the pathways in which we could access better banking services in digitally native form to those deserts, then shame on me for not doing it, right? Um, so, so that's like step one, point out the problem and point out where the connections to the things that matter can be made. The second issue is then we clearly cannot subject people to financial services vaporware. You know, when, when academics call stablecoins wildcat banking and make the connection to wildcat banking, I think that's, that's too convenient a revisionist history. We have to break the pattern of internet funny money, where, where a lot of people got subjected to a lot of fraud. But don't hide under the guise of consumer protection, tell a whole industry to stop innovating, because we've failed. 
And if we fail at innovation and we fail at addressing the perimeter of payments to include the rest of humanity, then I think it's a massive domestic security, national security, and global security risk to have billions of people in the shadows falling prey to all kinds of terrible things. So that's that's where my my starting point and end point is there. So if that's okay, I'll jump in. And it's it's one step to say, yes, that's needed. And the ecosystem is ready to build better solution. The ecosystem is moving forward with great ideas on how to solve the problems. As you know, regulatory bodies becoming innovative and thinking about how to make your life easier as an innovator is not something that happens naturally. That's not what they wake up in the morning really trying to do. And But the opportunity around using technology to do that is something that's where the bridge comes in. Um, and some of the conversations and the value proposition that we build is really around how do you become and how do you adopt an innovation framework as a regulator? Like literally becoming part of the story, take a seat at the table and there are really big needs for what they do, but um, how? And how does the conversation happen? What are the use cases that are considered? What is the whiteboarding session? Do we have new voices at the table? Um, really crafting that. And that's where we are not only having you know, new voices at the design table, but also at the coding table. And at the regulatory table. And at the and regulatory table. <laughs> so, you know, you know, like, like are, are there people from our community who, you know, who are who are there and asking these questions and 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 understand that part of their job is is to think about communities that have been underrepresented. You know, and 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 I, and I think that that's you know you know certainly part of of you know the the challenge. But I, I did want to get back to something that you started your comment off with. You are an entrepreneur. Um, you know, and just getting back to that original statement. I mean, do you do you think that the industry writ large is interested in your solutions? I mean, you've had to go out to VCs and raise money for varying solutions uh, to servicing central banks while talking about inclusion and digital transformation with uh, regulators? Have you seen much interest in your larger philosophical and, and obviously uh, market perspective? You know, I never thought of it that way <laughs> until you actually positioned it like that. But you're right. We are creating value for the regulator um, and being funded and creating technology that is being funded by the private sector. Um, it is a new model, but if you think about a lot of talks of private and public partnership, I think there's no better way to think about how you can create a synergy and how you can create a model that's sustainable, um, that is profitable, but also that creates value um, for the ecosystem at large. It's a unique position. It's actually quite a niche market to create where investors kind of scratch, scratch their head and say, wait, what are you doing? <laughs> What exactly are you doing? Central banks actually pay money and have technology. And then we say, yes, the Fed spends about $680 million a year just to print paper cash. This whole logistics business is, 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 quite, a, is quite a budget. Um, but also, when you start linking the technology to um, policy mandates, what they do, um, making them more efficient and doing what they do and the belief that if they are better and if they are better informed, if they have better data and better voices at the table, that actually they can be a very big catalyst for the broader ecosystem. So it is a storytelling exercise for us. Um, we are framing 
um, that narrative and presenting that as a value proposition. Um, and I'm very fortunate to have people on the team with me, whether it's former Federal Reserve, um, former SEC, and really kind of looking at it from a regulatory perspective and honestly believing in the ability of central banks to play that role and hopefully um, helping them do that. Uh, I'll refer to something um, Treasury Yellen actually mentioned during the 63rd um, NAIB um, Association meeting um, when talking about the opportunity for innovation that the Treasury is looking at around the digital dollar. I was surprised, to be honest, to hear use cases from a financial inclusion perspective and started connecting the development banks um, as part of the conversation. There's something happening in Latin America right now, in Central America right now, that I don't think the U.S. government has an appreciation for and what the regulation around digital currency can do. Um, and, and there's potentially a lot of opportunity for economic development. So, so I, I guess we'll transition there with our with our last question, which I'll save. Um, but I think this is a, a useful full bridge um, to both uh, Tanya and, and 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 Dante. Again, you know, really honing in on the question of not just the the regulators, but 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 also the the industry. So when you look at you know people in in, in crypto, you know, like how much are they actually on the market side? Are they really thinking about okay, how can we create an alternative banking system where onboarding is cheaper? How can we make sure that we target our services towards people of meager means as opposed to um, people who may be a little bit wealthier? You know, to what extent are they focusing it towards? uh, uh, you know, is this a question of asset management and and wealth creation, or or you know, is is the bulk you know, uh, which is skewed towards wealthier in individuals, or are, do you see a lot of energy focused on higher volume services that 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 are aimed at sort of increasing or bringing people within uh, some kind of uh, secure financial services ecosystem? It's a really um, interesting question. I've been spending a lot, I'm doing some writing right now on the um, non-fungible token side and spending a lot of time precisely with that question. I think it presents an interesting challenge on the side of those who are whales in the crypto space who have, I don't know, a couple of million equivalent or more to dabble in um, participating in buying creative or collectible NFTs. Um, and the astronomical prices that we see for certain pieces. And um, I think far more are involved for the same feeling of buying low and selling high rather than the subjective valuation of art for art's sake, right? And who is in a position to really participate in a meaningful way at a high level. But when I think about the ability for people to participate meaningfully on some of the the, the far higher uh, valuations in the, in the non-fungible token space. I, I am concerned that the very uh, issues and, and challenges around meaningful participation across the board will, will be lost with those who are the only folks who are actually in a position of, to uh, participate. And then the final point there is, but I have seen people pay a mortgage, pay a bill, leave their job, survive in a pandemic because they are selling non-fungible tokens. And so it's a both and in that respect. Well, you know, that's such an interesting point because, you know, on the one hand, you hear about the Sotheby's and, and NFTs, right? But on the other hand, people say, well, to the extent to which people can, can own 
their work, you know, um, and particularly in a creative industry where uh, black people are are overrepresented. It's kind of like you know going back to nineteen sixties, you know, Motown. Like you know, do you own your masters? You know, with with music kind of concept. You know, with an NFT. And this is a capital, capital asset, asset too, which is a and you know that, that 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 exactly that that there is a kind of I, I suppose a, a, a kind of certainly a, a kind of interesting inclusion argument, and at the same time the speculative uh, question. Dante, what do you think? I think. I think, again, you know, the time horizon for measuring the real impact has is too short, but that the opportunity to do this right, the opportunity to do this in a distributed manner, that crypto is much less about financial services and more about ideals. And I think all of those ideals are, are incredibly empowering. They're very uniquely, candidly, American and Western. This uh, concept of out of many, one, this power of collective witness, this power of pulling people and stranded assets and opportunity off the sidelines and into uh, an all ships rising moment is a deeply, deeply powerful thesis. That's what I, I care about most when it comes to the space. And I think that's what makes it a movement. Now, is it uh, as pale, stale and male as traditional tech or financial services? I would argue, no. Uh, look at me. I'm sitting now at the helm of not one, but the second major crypto project in as many years. I was the founding executive of the Libra project. I was discovered to join it because of serendipity. And I think that concept of improving discoverability and showing through hopefully today's conversation that people can self-select and opt in and that they can be discovered and that you can join this movement, uh, very powerful movement, I think, of creating equitable access to opportunity and the rest. Uh, the time is now. This is Web3, and these are very, very, very early days. We stopped, we changed the world with the internet when we stopped talking about what made it work. I think we will change the world with blockchain technology and crypto assets when we stop talking about the technocratic aspect of it and how and why it works and start talking about outcomes and, and sort of de-abstracting all the tech and the hardware. We're still in, in you know, the ground floor and I think the many levels of this building that we're building will be very, very equitable, very representative. And, and candidly, because people like us are in the room, we have a shot at getting it right from a design point of view. Dante, Carmel, Tanya, thanks so much for, for making it onto the show. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Chris. There's a long-running school of thought that says that people of color tend to be a little less ideologically pure than the norm because, as minorities, their lives inherently involve navigating trade-offs and making compromises. Life isn't about avoiding risks. Life is risky. It's about mitigating risks, but taking advantage of the cards that we've been dealt. But every once in a while, you get a chance to change the deck, and my experience is that when you talk to black and brown people on the hill or on the street— there's a sense that if anything can actually help diminish income and wealth inequality, then it should be explored seriously. Now, as the country's demographics change, government and industry will have to demonstrate that they're thinking hard about ensuring that everyone has access to cutting-edge, high-quality financial services and that the financial system continues to evolve in ways that are safe and accessible to everyone. Think of it as the ultimate customer service. The question, of course, is whether crypto delivers, and if so, under what circumstances. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to get in touch, just hit me up at
at Chris Brummer DR. That's at C H R I S B R U M M E R D R. We'd love to hear from you. <laughs>